Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon Producing. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence, write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Today's show continues our specialty episodes where we take Hemingway at his own premise. We ask our guests a very simple question, their choice for Hemingway's one true sentence, and then as Hemingway writes, we go on from there. Many episodes from this series of shows will be collected into a book called One True Sentence, Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art, to be published by Godin and is already available for pre-order. Today's guest is Billy Collins, the author of numerous collections of poetry, including Horoscopes for the Dead, Questions About Angels, The Art of Drowning, and Picnic Lightning. A former distinguished professor at Lehman College of the City University of New York, Collins served as Poet Laureate of the United States from 2001 to 2003 and as New York State Poet from 2004 to 2006. In 2016, he was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Uh, Billy now has his own program on Facebook called The Poetry Broadcast. We're so honored to have him with us today. Billy Collins, what is your one true sentence and why? Well, uh, let me read the sentence and I'll try to tell you why. It's a sentence from a clean, well-lighted place. I think it's in the second paragraph. And I'll just uh, say something about it. It, that it, the, it begins with the pronoun they, and they is the two waiters who are um, being kept up late by the old man who refuses to leave the cafe. Not aggressively, but he just sits there drinking brandies. Um, and yeah, th- that's the they. <laughs> they sat together at a table that was close against the wall near the door of the cafe and looked at the terrace where the tables were all empty, except where the old man sat in the shadow of the leaves of a tree that moved slightly in the wind. Okay, so what stands out about that sentence to you? Well, I wanted to find a sentence that I thought, to my mind, was typical of Hemingway. And um, even though it's um, there's not much dramatic going on here, there are lots of sentences in Hemingway that carry more uh, import. Um, it is a, a sentence that conveys um, factual information. You know, it's a very obje- objective-seeming sentence kind of simple declarative, but with lots of prepositional phrases. And um, I, in fact, if you look at it a little more closely, and I've been looking at it too closely, probably, um, you know, he says that they're at, they're together. That's one thing. The two of them are together. And they're kind of in league. One is less patient with the old man. Um, uh, the younger one is. And there's, le- there's a lesson being taught there or not being learned. But they're together. They sat together at a table, and the table was close against the wall. Okay, I like against rather than by or near. And that uh, table was also near the door of the cafe, 
so they could look out, I'm just paraphrasing, so they could look out at the terrace where the tables were empty except where the old man stood, and then there's the tree and the leaves slightly moving. So we move from, really, it's a kind of uh, interior tour of this uh, little cafe. There's the table. It's against the wall. It's near the door of the cafe, so they can see the terrace, and that's where the old man sat. And then the sentence has this wonderful uplift at the end, very subtle, but um, the shadow of the leaves of the tree that moves slightly in the wind. And that tree has been mentioned before the leaves and the play of light uh, through the leaves onto the, I guess, the ground of the terrace becomes a kind of natural motion in the um, in the story. And it re I thought, now that I've been looking at it too much, but it's almost a Zen moment where there's the conflict of the two waiters between them. And then there's the waiters versus the man, in a sense. But there's this three-line poem by Basho, and it just goes, Summer grasses, all that remains of warriors' dreams. So when he looks up at the, when the tree is introduced, the shadows, uh, the light and the shadows and the leaves of the tree will, <clears throat> the tree will presumably be there after the waiters are gone and the man is gone and the leaves are, and, you know, and um, there's that sense of impermanence of human affairs. And then this kind of permanence of the, and sort of stability of the tree and the leaves and the light. So there's a lot, I think, I mean, there's a lot packed in there. And then just this word slightly, that's a soft adverb. Uh, the tree, uh, leaves of the tree that moved in the wind. Now this is slightly in the wind. So that's a micro perception. Well, who sees that? Exactly. Uh, well, it, Hemingway does, you know, and that's really the, the point of view in all of, um, most of Hemingway is that, the sentences are in the hands of the writer. I mean, it's easy to say of any writer. But in this case, this, the sentences play such a vital role in stabilizing uh, any of his stories and giving you not just a physical sense of place, whether it's up in Michigan or in this cafe, but it gives you a sense of um, kind of uh, epistemological stability, if that's not too big a phrase, that the, the eyes of Hemingway are upon the scene. And he, he will render this scene in these very, um, very, he's in a Hemingway gear of description. And that means very plain diction uh, and, uh, and clear syntax so that um, ang Anglo-Saxon vocabulary gives it a real solidity, table, leaves, tree, door, wall. Um, and the sentence, the, some of Hemingway's sentences have this kind of unshakability, you know, that the words are like bricks in the wall or Legos connected, that you, just, you can't put a straw in between the bricks, as they say. Uh, it, <laughs> you just can't mess with it. Um, so that that's one reason I, I picked it because I thought of of its because of its typicality, not because of its dramatic um, flair. Well, you say typicality, but you've chosen a fifty-word sentence, <laughs> right. which most people don't associate with Hemingway. They associate the quick, you know, the six-word declarative sentence. But here, this is a a sentence that goes on and on and has an accumulation of prepositional phrases. Um, what I, what you're saying that Hemingway sort of governs the, the sentence and he is your, the guide 
-hmm. When we start with they sat together and then we go to where the old man sat, are your eyes as the reader following the scene? First, you're looking at the two waiters and then you're watching what the waiters are watching and then you're conscious of the trees at the end. Is there that progression as you navigate the sentence? Well, now that you put it that way, yes. Um, yeah, we go from the, the two waiters to the old man. We go from the inside of the cafe to the outside, to the terrace, to the tree. We also go from the two waiters to the emptiness except the old man and then to the tree. So, yeah, we're, I think we're, we're, being, we're being led by a, a series of prepositional phrases, each one adding a little bit of information and a little more interior knowledge of the of the scene uh, but we end up with the um the wind right so we go from something very human very stable that here's the cafe here's the wall here's the table here's the terrace and that's all set up and then there's this um you know lo slightly in the wind a very light uh, uh the the sentence finds a very light way to end after all this uh, factual compact language we had the word empty in the middle of the of the sentence and then the word wind at the end of the sentence that's fascinating billy i should also mention that i have the luxury of reading your email to me about choosing this sentence where you actually broke the sentence down into a poem and that really matters in many ways, which I'd like to explore. But first of all, would that change the way you read the sentence if you were reading it as a poem? Well, it would. And I, because I'm so used to reading poems out loud, um, I mean, I can't think of an occasion where I have to read prose out loud <clears throat> now, <clears throat> now that I'm not teaching anyway. Um, it was hard to read. I had to practice reading my favorite sentence in a prose way, um, so that instead of saying move slightly in the wind, right, right, right. This is part of it. This is there's another sentence after this, right? <clears throat> that could be the end of a poem, slightly in the wind, and you'd have that uplift. But I had to say the tree that moves slightly in the wind, and then go on to the next sentence. But I'll read it. I mean, it reminded it broke easily into lines for me because. Well, the difference between prose and poetry essentially is that poets are doing a, an, an additional thing besides writing sentences, and that is writing lines. So we're writing lines and sentences, and sometimes the lines <clears throat> break uh, against the sentences, and there's some tension between them and interplay. But um, my my lines, we talk about where where do you break? You know, it used not to go into the lesson here, but it used to be there used to be a metrical reason uh, whose whiz these are. I think I know. So you go four I am's out, and then hit the typewriter thing, and it goes bang, and you go back to the bang <laughs> in those days, Hemingway's bell, um, and and. I break my lines based on the grammatical structure of the sentence. Um, almost always the end of the line is a kind of grammatical, signals a grammatical unit. So I would read the poem, uh, the Hemingway poem like this. Caf it's called Cafe. I just thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> they sat together at a table that was close against the wall near the door of the cafe and looked at the terrace 
where the tables were all empty, except where the old man sat in the shadow of the leaves of a tree that moved slightly in the wind. So that was, yeah. That's, that was, yeah. So a couple of questions about that division and what that does for the sentence. First of all, would Hemingway be astounded or appalled that that sentence would have been able to be divided so neatly into a poem? Or would he say, yeah, that's exactly, I knew it had that kind of structure to it. Well, it, it'd probably take a swing at me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like he did with Wallace Stevens. He didn't, but, he, he didn't think much of poets. But I think this would be a, a compliment I don't know <laughs> about how he would take compliments, but uh, I think he skeptically. Would just I think leave it, leave it alone, leave it be. Um, the- well, for me, it does it does uh, show that the sentence. Uh, I mean, it's I guess Hemingway is sort of the anti uh, Henry James. It, you know, a Henry James sentence would. I don't think it's susceptible to being um, snipped into lines as this one is, but this does, as you pointed out, it does have. It, the sentence does is composed of a series of prepositional phrases and very factual of you know where the tables near the door of the cafe against the wall in the shadow of the leaves and so they they that's a, that's a way of uh, of breaking them into into shorter lines the one thing that and i've read that sentence obviously many times when i'm uh, <laughs> reading it as a story but the one thing that your division introduces to it is really lines five and six where it says where the tables were all empty and i'm reading that as a standalone line where the tables were all empty now think about that scene where the tables were all empty and then the next line is except where the old man sat Mm -hmm. and suddenly the desolation of the scene is so much more powerful because you have divided those phrases line by line. So that was a, for me, a revelation mm. about the meaning of that sentence. Well, empty stand is, is at the end of the line. And, and that's another thing in, in these, because of the spatial nature of poetry and not the completely linear nature of, of prose is that um, a word that you see at the end of the line uh, draws attention to itself by its place there. So that was, a, that, there's a lot of emptiness to come in this, uh, story, in fact, a kind of complete philosophical, spiritual, and religious emptiness in this in the Nada prayer. Um, yeah. Well, the other thing, just <laughs> tinier and tinier screwdrivers here. But the tables were all empty except where the old man sat. A lesser writer like me might have said the tables were all empty except the one where the old man sat. You know, oh, but right. just you know where. Yeah, where except where the old man said, he doesn't have to say table again. Yeah. And the, maybe the last thing about this sentence, and then I want to, uh, I want to transition, but you mentioned earlier the adverb slightly and we Hemingway had a notorious relationship with adverbs, but sometimes when he uses adverbs, they are so important to the story. Like it's almost like he has a chip where he'll, allow himself one or two. They were all waiting reasonably for the train in Hills Like White Elephants. And you realize, well, that's quite an important adverb. So does that slightly 
is that a does that uh, conjure up anything for you that he would use an adverb there at the end of the sentence? Well, it's uh, it adds to that kind of lightness, uh, that moving away from the pedestrian uh, cafe, the old man. There's, there's, I mean, just because the old man is keeping the waiters up, that's not a thing of great consequence. But when he lifts into this slightly, that it just shows that there's something else going on and we don't know exactly what but there's Hemingway going on and yeah. and, and a more general th- point is that if um, I tend to encourage you know younger poets to use to try a very we have exercise I have exercises to give them um, kind of imi- usually imitating William Carlos Williams where you use a very simple vocabulary use a very plain diction so window table door then if you establish that background you, once you throw in an interesting word, it 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 pops against the background. So right. stabier seventy five cent words, uh, like slightly, slightly is um, um, I don't know, just gives some air to the to the sentence. That's a beautiful beautiful ending. Yeah, and slightly you have to say even slightly is barely seventy five cents. It's not like incredulously like Fitzgerald would have used. It's a, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's slight, you know, it's going just a bit over the vocabulary range that we, that has been established in the sentence. Well, he knows more than anybody that nouns do not require adjectives. Um, That, uh, and then in that sense, it it is a little like um, uh, Japanese or Chinese poetry or ha- haiku would be a more specific way to put it in that there are very few adjectives and the, the sense is that there's a self-sufficiency of nature particularly. So the tree is a tree yeah. the, or, or a bridge is a bridge and, this, and the cloud is a cloud. It does not need your decorative uh, nonsense. In fact, it's much better without it. Yeah. Red wheelbarrow, white chickens, that's, that'll suffice. Yeah. I mean, white jittery chickens or <laughs> white, white, uh, edible check chickens. Crispy. You know, all yeah. sorts of ways to screw that up. Yeah. Back after this. This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I are huge fans of the Hemingway Review. We always read it to see the latest scholarship. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org backslash journals. Well, Billy, as a poet, do you read prose and your mind considers it as poetry? Is this because breaking down a prose sentence into poetic form, is that part of your training not not really I, I think when i read i think there are two kinds of, we're thinking basically when we say prose thinking ba- usually of fiction and um i think there are two kinds of um prose books or or, or novels or collections of short stories and and one of them um has uh well there are sent there there are there are two kinds of books that for me, one is I, I read sentence by sentence. I'm really aware that I'm I'm in the hands of a sentence maker, like Hemingway or like Henry James um, or like Peter DeVries or Nicholson Baker. There's a lot of uh, um, 
sentences where you stop and just, man, what a great sentence. You go back and read it again. And you're kind of on part of your brain is looking for cool sentences. And then there's the other type, a more pedestrian, functional. Maybe this would be just um, a pamphlet on how to uh, assemble an air conditioner or something. Um, that the sentences are just basically moving the plot forward, sort of in pot boilers or James Patterson or something like that. They're just pushing the plot forward. And the sentences have, are really of no aesthetic interest in themselves. Um, I, when I was in college, I, I had to write a paper on Hemingway. And I remember sitting in the library. And uh, at, at the time, I was distressed about something. Was I having an argument with my parents? Or I don't know what it was. Um, but I was, uh, you know, I was 19 or whatever. So who knows? But I remember as I read him uh, in the library, feeling very cool, very calmed down. And I realized there was a therapeutic thing going on. And I think it was the rock solid dependability of his parade of sentences. Parade's the wrong word because it's just too noisy and colorful. But the linkage of one solid sentence after the other. And um, I, I must admit, in, in, in the future, at, at points where I did, you know, was feeling jumpy or um, uh, depressed about something. I would turn. I would pick up the old man in the sea, or pretty much any Hemingway, and just start reading. And it um, was cheaper than going to therapy for one thing. Part of our theme of this show is the one true sentence, where Hemingway said, "All you have to do is write one true sentence, and then and then go on from there." Does that have applicability to poetry, or at least the way you write poetry? Well, the the first line is is essential. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's a completely true sentence, but um, I, I can't get I can't get into a poem without the first line. I guess that seems pretty obvious, but I know a lot of um, I would say a lot of short stories or or novels are. I mean, it's not like Alice in Wonderland where you begin at the beginning and keep going till you get to the end and then stop. Um, so, so you never I, You've never composed, like, you come up with the line that you know is going to be the last line? No. And, then, and it's always the beginning. Probably maybe three times in my career or something like that. But it's always the beginning. It's the point of insertion. And it's sort of someone, I think, it's like the key signature of the poem is the, uh, the first, the first, yeah, the first thing you say. It sort of sets, sets the tone and um, gives you a starting place. And then the poem wants to move generally away from that starting place uh, at some point. So I don't know if it's a, a true sentence, but it's a, it's a starter sentence and it, it, it um, opens the possibility of continuation. It, 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 um, it shows itself willing. The sentence suggests that we couldn't, we can move forward from this point into maybe more description and then make some turn into in, in, to go from the cafe to the leaves, and that that's that's would be a. I mean, I, used, uh, I like to say we go we start in Kansas, we, we end up in Oz, but in this sentence we could start in the cafe and end up with light in in the shadows of the leaves. So a true sentence to you is one that's going to have the legs to sustain the rest of the poem. Exactly, yeah, and and that's why my wastebasket, which is right here, <laughs> my, the writer's best friend. 
chain to my ankle uh, it fills with paper because there are many uh, sentences or uh, images or whatever that are not cooperative. They, they show no sign of interest in continuing. Do you have an example of when you got it right? Um, well, I say any of the poems I got it right. Really? If they can, if they continue to the end. Um, well, this, this is a, a sentence I like. Um, and it's, it's the first uh, stanza, quatrain, of a poem called Safe Travels. Every time Gulliver travels into another chapter of Gulliver's Travels, I marvel at how well-traveled he is, despite his incurable gullibility. <laughs> so that, <laughs> that had a... I was happy with that in a way that I'm usually not that happy. Um, and then it goes on to talk about travel. You know, how I don't like to travel very often, but I can always travel in my imagination, but only as far as Toronto, where some graduate students <laughs> in snoods and goatees are translating my poems into Canadian. So that's where it ends up in, in, in Canada. But you knew that opening sentence was going to lead somewhere. Yes. Yeah. And I just thought it, 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 it kind of locked in place the way a lot of, um, uh, in an unusually solid way. Do you have a, a greater, let's say, perception about what is a true sentence and what is not a true sentence? Are you, do you abandon a poem, let's say, with a second or third sentence? How does that process of determining the truth of a sentence work? Well, sometimes a poem can't find its, uh, I, I can't find the ending. So it's, it really not, it's not a break, it's not a, like a syntactic breakdown <clears throat> where the sentences are, 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 are not working. It's more, um, the f poems fail for me when, um, the whole mechanism, the whole journey of the poem is, um, aborted or abortable. Uh, the poem is just, it's, it's either refusing to continue or, or not opening up to the possibility of a swerve or pivot in some other direction. And, 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 or <laughs> it's, uh, incapable of finding its own ending. I'm blind here. You can say I'm blaming the poem for this. Yes. Well, I'm no, it, is it really the responsibility of that opening sentence to provide the engine for the rest of the poem? It's 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 the push, yeah. It's you're being pushed off the dock. <clears throat> Your canoe is being pushed out into the lake or whatever. But um, and then but then it has to continue uh, by some other means. This first sentence is not enough of a you know force to like to push the poem all the way to the end. Although I've been writing very small poems these days, where there is really only one. <clears throat> one excuse me, only one uh, sentence, and that's the poem. So, uh, Well, I wonder is to what extent prose is like this too, where the first sentence of a, even a novel, even a great big novel like, you know, uh, Call Me Ishmael, to what extent does that first sentence kickstart the entire sprawling thing? I think it does in many cases. Um, there were the best of times and the worst of times and some, uh, Jane Austen's beginners, um, all have to do with, you know, families and marriage and, 
Um, and there's that test. I mean, you can take the first and last line of any novel and just uh, in a bookstore and see if you want to read it. Uh, Is that your first. test? It's a test. Yeah, I've done it before. And with, if I come across the New Yorker story, I will definitely like read the first paragraph. And sometimes I stop there and sometimes I don't. So that's it's very important, I think, to get the get the show on the road. It's sort of a, a famous truism in Hemingway studies that as a prose writer, Hemingway was poetic and vivid in kind of the way that you looked at it today with Clean Well Lighted Place. But as a poet, he didn't really have that kind of power. And have you looked at Hemingway's poetry at all? Not really. Uh, but I think of him as sort of a romantic journalist. You know, because he comes out of the journalistic background, I think that, uh, as many people have pointed that out, it accounts for his, um, his the steadiness of the writing in a sense. But also, like the the slightly in the wind is um, his romantic side, which he um, I think continues to repress, but it, it breaks through at times. But I, I think um, I'm always on the lookout for sentences. I mean, one of the great sentences. And I've taken some of the, I've taken the uh, little parentheses in it as a title of one of my books is from Lolita. And it's the sentence where, uh, this is the sentence, my very photogenic mother died in a freak accident, picnic, comma, lightning, when I was, <laughs> I was three. Now, this is the only time I think Humber and Humber talks about his mother. And any Freudian would say, uh, well, maybe the problem is with your mother. <clears throat> and the other thing is, I didn't, I didn't notice that photog photogenic sounds interesting, but if your mother dies at three, yeah, you have no memory except through photographs. Exactly, and that's just beautifully. Um, um, instead of saying, you know, I have no, I, so I used to look at her photographs because I couldn't remember. Just photogenic is just so uh, cool <laughs> word in there. Peter DeVries has one of my favorite sentences, which is partly a dialogue. So this guy knocking on the girl's door. Uh, it is I, he said, for he had been to night school. We're reading Peter DeVries, especially Reuben Reuben. Uh, the first time I realized that syntax could be really funny, you know, just the arrangement of words uh, could be hilarious. No, that is, that is great. One of the things that I was wondering about your, your own work is this notion of creating poetry out of what would seem to be everyday occurrences. Mm -hmm. And if, so this sort of poem cafe that you made out of Hemingway's work right. in and of itself is an everyday occurrence. Mm -hmm. It seems mundane. It doesn't seem the stuff of poetry. So is that, does that take a special kind of insight or courage to make a poem out of something that's not the Iliad, but rather one person's private experience? Yeah, I don't, well, I'd reject courage right, or risk. And I don't, the only thing I'm risking is writing a bad poem is, um, well, that's the world around us. That, that's, that's what most poetry stands on um, ever since Wordsworth, at least. It's the, the natural world around us or the physical surroundings. And that's the way I tend to begin poems just to say that, 
Um, well, it's, it's really just try not to ask the reader too much at the beginning of the poem. So you try, I try to write a poem where the reader um, kind of, you kind of have to accept it. Um, you know, I'm sitting here looking at this, looking out the window at a cherry tree. It's Wednesday afternoon or something. Well, the reader can't just reject that, <laughs> doubt it. But so once you, once you bring the reader into a scene, a table, a cafe, terrace, light, um, then you can get on to heavier things. But readers like reader, readers like um, we as humans like um, the decorative art. So we we like the the palm tree and the 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 uh, drawing of a pig on the wall or whatever whatever is around us. You know the the orchid and the bicycle and all that stuff, and um, just using. Uh, a dis simple descriptive beginning. I really learned this not so much from Hemingway, but from Coleridge, who in some of his poems uh, starts of the poem in a physical domestic place. He's in the he's in the living room looking at the fire. He's in the backyard, um, but he uses uh, his own domestic setting um, as a point as a a point of a gate of departure for the poem. I'm thinking about a poem of yours, like Aso Buko, where even in that poem, you say something like, I'm sorry to paraphrase yourself. You say something like, this isn't normally material for poetry, right? Well, it, yeah, that was a poem about a difficult subject in, in poetry, which is contentment. Right. Since, since poetry is uh, the subject of most of it is misery and deprivation and hunger. <clears throat> but this is a poem about being uh, having a really satisfactory dinner, and um, yeah, you don't hear much about that in poetry. As I think that's the line. Yes. You know, yeah. Something like, you know, the boots by the in the corner, the the wind howling in the branches, something like that. One of the ways I know that that's not a typical subject in poetry is because anybody I ever talk about also buco with students or other people are looking for the elements of discontent and tension <laughs> in that, po in that right. poem, whether you intended it or not, Billy. Yeah. Well, the, the only discontent uh, I've had with that poem is that a, a few, not a few uh, vegetarians have gotten up and left the readings. The poem says, but tonight, the lion of contentment has placed a warm, heavy paw on my chest. Um, yeah. So it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's trying to introduce pleasure as, an, as a subject in poetry and being very conscious that that's an unusual thing to do. That poem also has the woman who ordered the meat, right? Like, why would he say the woman who ordered the meat? He must be secretly... People are oh, looking right. for that in, in the oh, people wow. are looking for that in the poem. Who pointed to show the butcher <laughs> the one she wanted. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it was my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the other thing is it's 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 a it's a it's a scene of domestic not just tranquility, but domestic harmony. Um and that's not a good subject for poetry. Also that's true. Also wife is not mentioned very often. You know, one thing poets don't mention is uh, most of them teach for a living, me included. M very, very few of them mention teaching. There are very few poems about students. 
And the other thing is very poem, very few poems about, I think, wife, maybe husband, too. Some, yeah, Galway Canella is a great poem um, that comes to mind. But um, the, the, uh, the posture there is that the poet is unemployed and single. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the romantic. Just one more point about that particular poem, Asobuco, is you also, it says, uh, one of us will follow the other up the stairs, right? And right. you can follow somebody two seconds after, or you could follow somebody two hours after. So there's a little ambiguity in at the end, towards the end of that poem. Yeah, I, th I think it was um, go, up, go up to bed and the other one will follow. This is uh, takes place in a house, obviously, but it, it's the first house that I owned that had two stories. You know, it was an old colonial house in upstate in, in northern Westchester in New York. And the um, I love going up to bed and coming down for breakfast. <laughs> I just <laughs> it was real thrilled for a while. Just so, the difference in go, elevation, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. going to go down and make some coffee, dear. And, or, I'm going up to bed. I don't know why, but that's why that's in there. But so many poems have that, like, a little autobiographical secret like, secret like that that no one really needs to know. The poem is self-sufficient without it, but there's always a little more to it. Yeah. Uh, Billy, I'd like to ask you about one other of your poems and see if we can also connect it to Hemingway. And probably, well, let's say one of the most prominent of your poems is The Names, right? which you wrote after, well, you can certainly tell us, but you wrote after 9-11. And it's hard to, hard to think of a poem that has been written in the last several decades where the stakes were as high. I remember you just said 10 or 15 minutes ago, you wouldn't call writing a poem courageous, but you'd have to say that that took some guts to write that poem. But I'll just make one observation about that poem. And even in the title, The Names, one of the conceits is that naming people, individuals, is of sufficient power to render that kind of tragedy, uh, that national experience. And that, of course, reminds me of that m really famous moment in A Farewell to Arms, where Frederick Henry says, I was embarrassed by words like glory and hallowed and sacrifice. And all that was really real were the dates, the names, the regiments. So like 9-11 has more resonance than anything else you could say about it, and also the names. So I'm wondering if there, if I'm making too much of that connection. Well, that's a, that's a, <clears throat> I love the connection. Um, it's, um, it's this, it's really the loss, uh, the names. I mean, other people have done, I mean, this, there's not much else to do except say the names. I mean, I have, I have the names kind of alphabetically with that, that the order of that, the alphabet is a way of kind of an organizing principle for the poem. Um, and I had one for each letter of the alphabet, except X. There was no, uh, the, the, the list of the dead had no one beginning with X. So I put that in the parentheses and said, let, let X stand if it can for those unfound. Um, 
well, there was a lot of pressure there. I mean, um, more pressure than I've ever experienced in my writing life. No one, let's face it, is really waiting for my next poem. Uh, but in this case, uh, Congress asked me to read a poem at this joint session of Congress on the first anniversary of 9-11. And I was poet laureate then, so uh, I got off the bench and, and did that. Um, it was, you know, it, it's really a form, um, I hate to be cold-blooded about this, but um, the reason I was able to write it was that I came to two formal um, decisions. One, it would be an elegy. So it's just a poem for the dead. It's not about you know international uh, problems. It's not about terrorism. It's not about the future of America. So it stays within the boundary of the elegy. And then I used the alphabet to move through it. And that made it possible to write it. And it's another um, example of how limitation can, uh, can be a creative uh, and not a limiting uh, influence. Do you remember how you came up with the conceit, going back to our one true sentence discussion, how you started with just A and then it, it took you there. What was it about names that excited that poem? I don't I remember very vividly. I was lying in bed at 5.30 in the morning upstairs. <laughs> Up those stairs. Up the stairs. I told Congress when they called me, not the whole, not the whole of Congress, but some committee putting this event together that I, I, I didn't know if I could write a poem on that occasion. Um, and they were very uh, disappointed. And, but I said, I would, I, I'm honored to, I'd like to read something. And I thought I'd read some Whitman or something. And then um, maybe a week or two later, I'm in bed at five 30 in the morning and I'm thinking, um, a voice, probably my mother said, you really need to get off the bench here. And, you know, um, and it was lying in bed that I thought, uh, oh, I can, I can use the names of the dead and I can use the alphabet. And uh, when I got up, I got up out of, right away and went downstairs again. And, and I wrote it in a few hours. Um, once I had the scheme of it, cause it's 26 willows. It's, um, seeing the alphabet and the shapes of trees and the twigs of trees and just all variations on the alphabet. And then one by one, the names going down to Z for it. Uh, Zeminsky, I think it was. How did the names become so perfect? Uh, did, how did they suggest themselves? Each letter you gave just the perfect name. Well, that's the, that's the self-entertaining part of uh, Fiori, like is for flowers. I remember that one. I don't know if there's so many connections like that, but uh, that's the self-entertaining part of writing. I mean, to have really play, you're really playing a game, you know, alpha, an alphabet game. And, um, and I've said this about some other of my poems, but anybody could have played that game. You know, you could write a poem uh, where you take, uh, you know, 26 names and, and and move through it and or take uh, the numbers one to ten and write a little line about each number uh, i have a poem called questions about angels and i say to classes like if i asked you if an angel is going to appear tomorrow in this class and you had you could ask the angel a question what would you ask you know so anybody can kind of these are imaginative games that i'm playing uh, by myself, but um, lots of people could join in in, in some of the poems anyway. 
it's like uh, your poem sonnet about a sonnet and how you're constrained and you're being sort of self-conscious about that confinement. It's, it's really, it's funny, but also poignant in, in that way. There are a lot of sonnets about the sonnet. Wordsworth has one called Scorn, Not the Sonnet, which is not as good as his other poem about, I think it's called uh, Nuns Don't Fret About Their Confines. They don't put uh, their in right. cells and prisoners. Are, um, so the, the sonnet is a, uh, a, a confining space, but he's celebrating uh, the smallness and the limitations of it. Uh, one more question about uh, the names, if if I could, uh, that also I wonder if it was going through your strategy with the poem, your approach to it, that the greatest danger would have been to overstate, as opposed to understate. There's something about the names, uh, the actual names, uh, lowercase n, that is so matter of fact and mundane that it makes it more powerful. I'm also thinking of the Vietnam War Memorial, where by looking at the names, it conveys all the power that you need without any of the rhetoric. Um, was that, were you conscious of that? I wasn't conscious of it until I got to the memorial, not the Vietnam, but the uh, uh, Ground Zero. Uh, and I saw, the, I didn't go looking for them. But walking around there, uh, at first I didn't go looking for them. I wasn't thinking about my poem. But there I found, um, you know, Nardella, or one of the names. And that became very moving. I kind of lost it there. Because to me, frankly, I didn't know any of these people. Medina, Nardella, O'Connor, Kelly, and Lee. I didn't know any of these people. But there they were. So they were took on a reality that I wasn't expecting. Okay, well, I thought because the program is one true sentence, um, I have a poem which is actually about a sentence and how it starts out and how it finally ends. And it's called Winter Syntax. The sentence starts out like a lone traveler heading into a blizzard at midnight, tilting into the wind, one arm shielding his face, the tails of his thin coat flapping behind him. There are easier ways to make sense. The full moon, for example, when a cloud crosses it, it becomes as eloquent as a bicycle leaning outside a drugstore or a dog who sleeps all afternoon in a corner of the couch. Bare branches in winter are a form of writing. The unclothed body is autobiography. Every lake is a vowel, every island a noun. But the traveler persists in his misery struggling all night through the deepening snow, leaving a faint alphabet of footprints on the white hills and the white floors of valleys, a message for field mice and passing crows. At dawn, he will spot the vine of smoke rising from your chimney, and when he stands before you, shivering, draped in sparkling frost, a smile will appear in the beard of icicles, and the man will express a complete thought. So that's the old schoolroom definition of a sentence, right? Expressing the complete thought. Alphabet of footprints. That is magnificent. Well, Billy, would you end with your one true sentence from Hemingway's work, please? They sat together at a table 
that was close against the wall near the door of the cafe and looked at the terrace where the tables were all empty, except where the old man sat in the shadow of the leaves of the tree that moved slightly in the wind. Billy Collins, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's wonderful to talk to you, and I, I love your project. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on OneTruePod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society, the English Department at the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. Oh,